Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really exciting founder, you know, a founder that uh, not only has built, but scaled, financed, and then also exited, not one, but multiple companies. And we're talking in the billions. So uh, again, you know, today we're going to be talking about learning and applying what you learn from one rodeo to the next. Also scaling, especially on very complex uh, environments. Also being able to uh, be open-minded and to do great stuff. Not a lot. I've been doing a lot with less, sorry. You know, especially, you know, now as we're thinking about the macro environment and things like that, you know, thinking about structuring your business, also taking your nose off, you know, from the weeds and, and being able to look, you know, at the horizon and think and get creative. You know, in, in our case, you know, with our guest today, I mean, he's been practicing medicine in addition to building and scaling companies all along the way. So again, incredible stuff, what we have ahead of us. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Rahul Kakar. Welcome to the show. Alejandro, thank you so much. I appreciate uh, your interest. So originally born in Hamburg, but uh, not that you had the opportunity to see much, you know, because you came here to the U.S. at the age of one. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think... My father came here um, as an immigrant from India by, by way of Germany, really looking for a better life for his family um, and did well enough in the steel industry in, in Lynn, Massachusetts, um, you know, very, very middle class uh, uh, household, um, really to set uh, me up, frankly, um, to, to try to make a better impact in the world. And I think I take a lot of my inspiration from, from him and what he sacrificed coming here. Um, so I think growing up, obviously, between two cultures uh, is always a bit challenging. Um, but certainly uh, wanting to make sure that I leave the, the world a better place um, than, than I came into it, um, largely the legacy of my father. Now, you went to uh, Boston, you know, uh, most of the time for, for the school, um, you know, part of it. But at what point do you start to get into the whole medicine and, and helping people out and, and stuff like that? What, 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 what did the, where did that calling come from? I think um, when I was in in high school um, in Belmont, Massachusetts, I think my, you know, coming from a very conservative home, there was very few career paths that were afforded to me. Um, medicine was certainly one of them. Um, but I knew from the very beginning that although there was a lot of pressure to move into medicine, that, that practicing medicine full time was not going to be enough. Um, I, it's going to sound, sound a little um, trite, perhaps, but uh, during an away medical rotation, um, when I was in Tanzania, Africa, um, I actually was reading um, many of Ayn Rand's books and, and became inspired with this idea of knowing how to use tools um, in order to be a better tool maker. Um, and I think that really sparked my interest in not just helping people, um, but furthering the tools we make and use to help people. And that, that really was where I found this bridge between both medicine and entrepreneurship that has carried me you know, really for the last two decades. Now, one thing that is very interesting is how initially you thought that uh, things were going to be out for you on the research side of things, maybe more on the academia and how that has matured more nowadays into the business side. But obviously, you know, you still, you know, practice uh, on the medicine side of things as a doctor. But at what point, you know, like, do you realize that, hey, maybe 
academia or research. You know, it's not so much what uh, is there for me and my future, but more perhaps, you know, the business and practicing. Uh, walk us through what were the sequence of events that needed to happen, how you experienced to academia, because you did quite a bit, you know, research there when it comes to cardiovascular and inflammation and, and some really good stuff that I, I'm sure that it gave you an incredible base and background. Uh, but, but walk us through those sequence of events. Yeah, I think, you know, hearkening back again to some of those stories um, that I read when I was in medical school, you know, many of those protagonists had a very profound technical knowledge, even though they were operating at a higher strategic level. And even though my training, um, even before medical school, when I was doing research in the summers uh, during college at Tufts University, but then particularly between medical school and residency, when I was in Chicago for three years doing a postdoctoral fellowship, and then in my cardiology fellowship, when I did the second postdoctoral fellowship at the bench doing the science, recognize you know, that I am a physician scientist at heart, um, but I naturally think strategically. And I think the spark or, or the idea that perhaps academia was not my path really came from two individuals in my training. Um, the uh, program director for cardiovascular training at Mass General Hospital very early, I think, recognized that that I was somewhat of a black sheep and was likely to head uh, outside of academia. And he very early started connecting me with venture capitalists in the Boston area, even during my first year of fellowship. And then, you know, later on in my fellowship, as I entered the lab, um, I had many um, debates, um, robust debates, um, very healthy debates with my principal investigator, with my PI, um, who was very clear at what it would take to become an academic researcher. And, um, Honestly, it was a tough realization, but my heart wasn't in it. Uh, I was always thinking about how the pathways and compounds I was working at could be used to create new medicines. Um, and you know what the NIH wanted was more basic science. And so it was very clear there was a disconnect. Um, so at the end of my fellowship, it was a tough decision, but I sort of abruptly decided that I was not gonna, not gonna pursue academic medicine any further. Although I still wanted to treat patients. I never wanted to be too far from the bedside. So out of all things, why? AstraZeneca was the door that you thought was the most exciting to knock on? Yeah, you know, AstraZeneca itself as an organization was not the draw. It was an individual. Um, it, was, it was Don Frail. And I think if you look at, you know, as I think back about my career over the last 10 plus years, since finishing fellowship at least, um, it is really marked with profound influence of certain mentors and individuals along the way. Um, I've mentioned a few already. Um, my program director at MGH, uh, my lab PI at, at MGH, um, and then the gentleman, Don Frail at AstraZeneca, who was building a very exciting group within AstraZeneca, but it was really learning how to develop drugs from him that was the real draw. Because um, like I said, when I was in my fellowship, all I wanted to do was make new medicines to treat patients who were suffering from the limited tools that we have. And, and he really has a passion for um, being what he calls a drug hunter. And I think that was a real draw. And, he, and even since then, through the, um, through the world of, of, of biotech, um, I've just had individuals who have uh, trusted me, put their faith in me, seen seen potential in me, and and I've used that as a source of of both confidence, um, but also as a source of saying, you know, I want to do do good by these people who seem to trust uh, trust me and put their faith in me. So so then with AstraZeneca, obviously, you know, that was like the first uh, you know real experience when it came to business. How was that for you? And what was the biggest lesson that you took away from that, uh, from that journey? 
Oh, my goodness, um, Alejandro, if I could tell you in retrospect how green I was coming out of academia into drug development for the first time, it's almost embarrassing. Um, but I had not just Don Frail, but the entire group, um, what was called the New Opportunities Group uh, at AstraZeneca, uh, mostly based in the UK, all of who became friends over time. They were incredibly patient with me, um, incredibly generous with their teaching, uh, generous with their time. And they really, many of them took me under their wing. And, you know, I'm sure we'll get to this, but as I think about the culture that we're building at Tone Biosciences now, much of it is drawn from that early open exuberance that we all shared at AstraZeneca. All of us trying to help each other be the best drug developers we can, all of us working together, very little ego around the table. Um, and that's very much the culture that we tried to build at Tone Biosciences. And I think why even in the two years we've been operating, we've been so successful. Um, that that cultural piece that that was part of that group at AstraZeneca that Don really fostered um, is how you bring out the best in people. And we'll talk about that in just a little bit. Now, tell, talk to us about venturing into the unknown with your first company, with the first company that you were really uh, founder, you know, at, which was Corvidia Therapeutics. Yeah, Corvidia was was really an extension of the science I had been doing at, at Mass General in terms of my in interest in inflammation and cardiovascular disease. Um, and it, it was a bit of a rocky path to get there. Um, I was in AstraZeneca. We, myself and another scientist, um, created this hypothesis around using an AstraZeneca molecule, an antibody against an, an interleukin IL-6 which was in very many, in many ways related to the, the research I was doing at MGH prior to leaving, saying, look, there's a real unmet need for addressing the inflammation and the risk uh, inflammation poses to heart disease. Uh, but you know, AstraZeneca has its own strategies, and that concept was very much off strategy. And I remember in the summer of, must have been summer of 2015, we brought the concept to the cardiovascular therapeutic area, and they deemed it too high risk to pursue. Um, it was one of the most difficult summers of my life because I was at the at, at one point crestfallen that something I really believed in as a scientist and a physician, as a cardiologist, um, was not something that a large pharmaceutical company saw as on strategy. Um, but then later that summer, as I began to speak to Pascal Sorio, the CEO of AstraZeneca, about my passion for this area which I knew he shared because I knew he loved the target and the pathway. Um, he really helped support the outlicensing of that compound into Corvidia Therapeutics, a new company. Um, and so I spent all of 2015 really with his support and the support of another mentor, Michael Davidson, who's continued to be a friend and mentor, a very successful physician, scientist, and entrepreneur in his own right, uh, currently uh, in biotech and in clinical practice, uh, starting that company. Um, so I think, you know, again, it, it's a story of really having the support of people who see the best in you and believe in your passion um, and supporting your passion uh, that really allowed me to generate escape velocity outside of AstraZeneca to start Corvidia. And there in Corvidia, for the people that are listening, you know, what were you guys really doing? What was the essence of uh, Corvidia? Yeah, Corvidia was, in essence, a single asset company formed around this compound out of AstraZeneca. Um, Medi 5117, a metamune antibody, um, which we renamed Ziltevekimab, but it's an anti-IL-6 compound. Um, and we really saw, based on you know my knowledge from my training, plus some basic science we did at AstraZeneca, that it had the potential to be a new asset class for cardiovascular disease. And so we formed the company um, 
you know, a combination of the science that I was passionate about and Michael Davidson, who was the, the, C, the original CEO of that company, his ability to bring in investors um, to form that company to start clinical trials of that compound in patients with cardiorenal disease. Uh, and the reason cardiorenal disease is patients who have both cardiac and renal disease have very high levels of inflammation. But Michael really taught me the very first, you know, put me on the very first rungs of climbing that ladder of what investors are looking for, how to translate the promise of science into the thesis for investment. So, so the company, I mean, which is amazing, first company that you found, first exit. And the company ended up getting acquired for $2.1 billion by... Novo Nordisk back, you know, uh, I think it was in June 2020. So what do you think made this company, you know, so successful and be able to achieve such a tremendous uh, outcome like that? I think that the acquisition of Corvidia by Novo, and as I'm sure we'll talk about the acquisition of Pandion by Merck, my second company, were the tale of really two ingredients. The first is very compelling clinical data. Uh, I think, you know, we are in the business of making medicines. And I think sometimes it's easy to forget that this isn't just a business. Um, this is a business for societal good. Um, and that societal good rests on the foundation of phenomenal data. And I think the thesis was correct. The compound performed excellently in its first and second clinical trial, uh, phase 2A and phase 2B. Um, and I think that was the first ingredient, um, just two very consistent and um, profound clinical trial results. And the second piece was honestly a bit of luck. Um, we were in the right place at the right time. Novo Nordisk was looking to build their cardiovascular franchise. Uh, that was their first major deal in quite a while, particularly in the cardiovascular space. They were growing their um, presence in cardiovascular with the SGLT2 inhibitors. Um, and we had the right data um, at the right time on strategy for a company, Novo, that was looking to put real money to work. And, and they've continued. Right Now that drug is in a large phase three clinical trial. Cardiovascular phase threes are multi-hundred million dollar prospects. And so they've continued to stay very committed to the field. Um, so I think the combination of strong data and then you know, having your ear to the tracks of what the strategies are for large strategic companies um, so that you are in the right place at the right time, right? This old adage, fortune favors the prepared. The data can make you prepared, but in order to have the good fortune of being picked up by a large pharmaceutical company who believes what you believe, um, you have to be uh, aware of the strategic uh, imperatives of those companies. And that takes a bit of luck. So so in that regard, too, I mean, luck, you know, at the end of the day, I hear you, but luck, you know, is opportunity, you know, meets uh, preparation, right? So in your guys' case, you know, when it came to being prepared to go through a transaction of that level, uh, what was the process like? You know, what, what, what is typically the process of getting an acquisition like that? Make us, make us insiders. Yeah, absolutely. So I can speak more to the process at uh, Pandion as I was the chief medical officer of Corvidia and uh, the second CEO of that company, Mark DeGaradel, and the head of business development, Ram Iyer, really led the transaction. But again, like I said, I think having the right data 
um, is uh, the foundation, but it's not the house. Um, the house is really built on that data in terms of telling a story and telling a story that involves the commercial potential of the, of the pharmaceutical, where it fits in the competitive landscape, not today's competitive landscape, but the future competitive landscape, um, and being very, very transparent about the potential of your medicine. I, I see a lot of business development professionals who are out there telling a story that, frankly, is a bit too much spin. I liken uh, a transaction in biopharmaceuticals as being equivalent to a luxury car. And what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is when you walk into um, a mid-level car dealership, you're being sold a product. When you walk into a high-end car dealership, nobody's trying to sell you anything. The cars sell themselves. These are beautiful machines made by people with passion. And I, I think a good drug that is built by scientists who have true passion with the data validates that passion, it's, it's educating and it's informing your counterparty of what you see, but you never have to spin. Uh, the good data sells itself. And so while you do have to be in the right place at the right time, and, and your, your point is well taken, um, that luck is, is preparedness and opportunity, um, I do think that you know, being very honest with yourself, um, you know, as, as one consultant told me, not being afraid to say when your baby is ugly and maybe perhaps needs more research, needs, needs more work, is it the right time to be telling the story? Or is it the right time to keep your head down and execute until the story is more refined? Those are some of the nuances of doing a deal that I think get overlooked because I don't believe that a deal can ever be engineered. I believe that a deal gets done at the right time on the right data. And sometimes you have to be very honest with yourself that it may not be the right time. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a Series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. And you were alluding to it, you know, with uh, with Pendion, you know, basically 1.8 billion acquisition. You know, it got acquired by Merck. Uh, I mean, unbelievable. You know, one after the other. And eh? what a what a strike here. Eh? Now, 
Now, in your case, you know, I, I, wa I want to ask you there, when you think about timing, when you think about timing to, to, to do a transaction, to get your company acquired, when do you know is the right time to sell the business? Uh, so the short answer is never. Um, I never try to sell a business. Um, I've never intended to sell a business, um, particularly at Handion, where I was CEO and intimately involved in the deal with our head of BD, a very, very talented head of BD, Vikas Goyal. Um, Merck had been following our progress for two years. Uh, they had started with proposals to acquire our lead asset, then co-develop that our lead asset. And, and every time we looked objectively at, at what they were offering and said, look, they're undervaluing the asset, at least what we, we objectively think the asset is worth. Like I said, we didn't engineer the deal. We didn't, we didn't bluster and, and take a position that was unreasonable. We didn't bluff. This wasn't poker. We honestly felt that Merck was undervaluing the compound as they, they made various proposals over the first two years. And, and at the end of the day, we put our money where our mouth is. We, we told them that, that their deal proposals were, were not aligned with our view of the of the value of the compound and we raised a series b we told them that their deal proposals were not where the new uh de-risking um data was and that we were going to execute an ipo and we did uh, we told them that the compound had great potential to be first in class um they didn't uh, uh execute and so we put the the drug into clinic and it you know the data revealed it was best in class and so i, I think in many ways Again, I don't believe deals can be engineered or spun. I think you truly are honest with the data and honest with yourself, then you can execute a deal on your own terms from a position of strength. I think that's the most important point. So it's not so much about engineering the time. It's, you know, a company will come to you and not take no for an answer if you have, you know, done over time what you said you would do and have generated data that is really above uh, above reproach. Um, and so that, that, like I said, means very much be honest with yourself in terms of, of your own data. So in this case, Rahul, you know, I guess uh, that uh, you and I can both agree that we're very fortunate because we're girls' dads. No? And I think that when you are a girl's uh, dad, you tend to be more in tune to your emotions, you know, and this is something that uh, perhaps, you know, we, we learn, you know, when, when we are, you know, in a, in a household with uh, with 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 these young uh, women, now I think that if you have that in mind, you know, you've also had the opportunity as well to practice, um, you know, as as as, as uh, in medicine, you know, all along the way, which is remarkable. At the same time that uh, that you were building those companies, and I guess my question is, from an emotional perspective, which I would say patient has impacted you the most and why? It's a great question. And, and no, I, I, I agree with you. I think being the father of daughters is a very, very special opportunity and experience. And, um, you know, whether whether they're daughters or sons, I think raising children with, particularly as they become teenagers, as my two older are, um, and they um, challenge you emotionally to stay calm under fire, uh, to see the bigger picture. Um, you know, teenagers fundamentally are, self-centered. That's not, that's not a negative comment. It's the stage of development that they're in. Um, they force you to see the forest for the trees and stay calm. And I think many of those emotional qualities that takes, you know, it's a muscle. It takes years to develop that emotional resistance. I've learned from my daughters and I've learned from the field of cardiology. Cardiology is all about being calm when a patient is crashing. 
Um, I would say the patient that I learned the most from was during my training. Uh, obviously, won't mention names for for privacy purposes. Um, but this was a patient who um, came into the hospital um, under my care while I was in training um, with um, very aggressive atrial fibrillation, which is an abnormal heart rhythm. Um, so aggressive such that it was threatening her vital signs. Her, her heart rate was very high. Her blood pressure was very low. Um, and no matter what we did um, to assist this patient, um, whether it was medicinally or trying to, to shock her heart or the rhythm, she was proving refractory. Um, this was a woman who was an immigrant um, from um, South America. Um, she spoke very little English, had very little education, and completely trusted us uh, to do what we thought was right. And I gave her um, a dose of a drug to control her heart rate um, that is, is a drug that's very tricky to use. Um, it has a very, sh- very small therapeutic index, shall we say, which is to say that the, the dose between efficacy and toxicity is very, very narrow. Um, and unfortunately, um, she uh, generated toxicity from the drug um, and uh, took a turn for the worst. Um, we were able to pull her through, um, but I remember running that code at her bedside uh, with the entire uh, you know, rapid response team from the hospital uh, gathered around the bed. I had the dual feeling of um, profound guilt that you know, had I done something inadvertently to harm this patient, um, but also competency that I knew I could pull her through. And she ultimately did make it through that procedure. But I think the trust um, of, of uh, a patient uh, in extremis, um, the recognition of competency to help, but also the limits of my competency um, all kind of hit me in that one moment during that code. Um, and I, I'll never forget her. Wow. Now, in your case, you know, the business side doesn't stop. And the next thing, you know, chapter is Tom Biosciences. So why did you decide to take this one on and why did you think that it was meaningful enough, you know, the problem to really go at it again? Yeah, as, as I look back to the summer of 21, after the exit of Pandion by Merck, the late spring, early summer, and then joining Tome at the end of the summer, early fall, I, I spent that summer doing a lot of soul searching. Um, it was a great summer, spent a lot of time with my daughters, spent a lot of time at the gym, um, and a lot of time, um, you know, taking hikes and walks, which, you know, which I love to do. I love being, being out, um, in the mountains of, of New England. Um, and I was not sure that I was going to jump back into another company. Um, you know, Corvidia had been a single asset company in an area that I was very passionate about with his inflammatory heart disease. Pandion had been a whirlwind 18 months from series A to IPO and exit, um, is, is almost unheard of. Um, uh, needless to say, I was exhausted. Um, and I spent the summer of, of 2021, um, you know, meeting with investors, um, meeting with fellow entrepreneurs, getting a lay of the land. And, and as the end of the summer came along, you know, I thought, you know, there's nothing really out in the biotech world that I find next level, which is to say, if I've gone from single asset company to platform autoimmune company from Corvidia to Pandion, there was nothing that I was seeing that was really you know, wider in scope and scale and potential societal impact. Um, and so I was sort of resigned to, you know, maybe I should just do some board work for a while, at least, you know, keep my, 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 my toes in the water, continue to practice medicine as I've done all the way through. Um, but then I was handed this paper by a recruiter from the founders of, of Tome, Omar Abadai and Jonathan Gutenberg, who are both at MIT. Um, and I was, um, I, I was, I was blown away. I almost lost my breath. Um, w- 
some of the biggest limitations in the world of genetic engineering for cell and gene therapies were overcome by this technology. And, and I had not really taken a strong interest in cell and gene therapy and, and, and genomic engineering technologies that underpin these drug classes, because I fundamentally have always been the developer of drugs for common diseases, cardiovascular disease, autoimmune disease, not really in the rare disease world. But here was a technology that had the potential to create a company that would span both rare and common disease. It was almost like building a large pharma, um, but startup. Um, and the potential impact to really leave a legacy, a lasting legacy on biopharma um, with this technology and the company that I could see building off of this academic paper, um, I had no choice but to jump in and jump in right away. So if I was to give you the opportunity of going to sleep tonight, Rahul, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Tom is fully realized, what does that world look like? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it's quite simple. It's the world of curing disease. My entire career has been about treating patients and developing drugs to control disease, to slow the natural history of disease. Outside of infectious diseases and vaccines, there are very, very few diseases we can actually cure. Uh, there are some cancers, there are very few cardiovascular disease, mostly in, in the world of arrhythmias, but but there are very, very few diseases we can cure. We generally control or slow them down. But I think what genetic engineering underpinning cell and gene therapy affords us the possibility of actually curing disease. I was speaking to uh, a very good friend of mine, uh, Dan Curran, who's uh, the head of Rare at Takeda. Um, he's been a friend of mine for over a decade and, and someone who you know, over drinks after work, we talk kind of big ideas in biotech quite often. Um, and, and we were remarking, you know, both of us are trained as physicians, that we weren't using the word cure 10 years ago. Um, and so, you know, waking up in a world where Tome is what I believe it can be, which is the defining company of the age of genomic medicines, which I, I fundamentally believe the 21st century, as we look back, um, you know, 50 years from now, uh, 21st century will be the age of genomic medicines, just as the 20th century was the age of, um, of, of antimicrobial and anti, antiviral therapies, um, that, that Tome will be a company that defines the age and defines the age by bringing cures to rare genetic diseases through its gene therapies and cures to more common diseases through the, the, the broad application and the democratization of cell therapies. Now, you are combining all of this with Polaris Partners. What are you doing at Polaris? I mean, it's like, when do you sleep? I mean, you have so much on your plate between practicing medicine, you know, now with Tom, now also you're throwing in there Polaris. I mean, what, what are you doing at Polaris as well? Yeah, I'm, I'm a bit of a, a James Bond geek. So I'll use the phrase of Gustav Graves, one of the villains. It's, there's plenty of time to sleep when you're dead. So, you know, life is short and, and we make the best impact that we can while we have time on this earth, both in our families and our professional lives. Um, you know, Polaris, um, I had not anticipated joining a venture firm um, after, after Pandion. Um, but in the course of Pandion, I got to know Alan Crane, who was the chair of the board at Pandion and is on the board at Tome, uh, a Polaris entrepreneur partner who started over 10 companies, uh, a great inspiration and mentor to me. Um, and, and he asked me to get to know the Polaris um, partners um, and managing directors uh, over the course of the summer of 21. And as I did, I realized that these were a group of individuals who shared the no ego, pure passion approach 
to drug development and, and investing. And I recognized, um, you know, perhaps after Alan did, uh, that there was a lot to be gained by being part of that group, both in terms of views of the industry that I would gain by, by being part of a venture firm, but also having, you know, people of high integrity to discuss the issues of the day with. Um, and so um, I was humbled when they asked me to join. Um, I do spend part of my time there um, as an entrepreneur partner, which is, you know, helping them start new companies. Um, I uh, joined a board uh, of an existing company and recently started a new company uh, with them that's still in stealth mode. So, you know, you know, most of my time is with Tome, um, but I do spend a portion of my time both in the hospital and at Polaris um, starting new companies and, and helping young companies get off the ground. And probably there's a lot of people that are wondering why, you know, still practicing medicine and why still at the hospital. How would you say that uh, having that, you know, still going and having been, you know, practicing medicine all along the way, you know, while you were really pushing startups, which is like absolutely unbelievable. How would you say that that has helped you to really get your eyes above the weeds and being able to think, you know, and being able to get, you know, really the strategicness done? Yeah, I, I will say that the ability to continue to practice medicine while being in, in biotech and the investment world is really something that humbles me because it requires a lot of support. It requires the support of my leadership and executive team at Tome to allow me to go into the hospital for a week at a time. It allows you know, an understanding from the university um, because there are um, you know, a lot of scrutiny of academic institutions around this interface between academia and and biotech and business. And, and there's a lot of concerns around conflict of interest. And, and the Division of Cardiology at the Brigham has been very supportive of my career. Um, and so I, I have to really thank both the Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School, as well as the investors and management teams I've worked with to allow me to do all of the myriad things that I do. But I, I think that you know one week a quarter approximately that I go into the hospital and I see patients in a concentrated manner um, even if it's not necessarily the kinds of patients that we're developing drugs for yet at, at Tome, um, does give me that, that moment to mentally switch gears. Uh, perhaps the best way to, to, to analogize here is um, it's like leaving your home country for another country where you speak the language. When I go into the hospital, it's very much speaking another language. It's pattern recognition of a different sort. Um, and it really helps me think about the decisions, the, the critical decisions with limited information that patients, families, and physicians have to make every day as they're facing life and death decisions um, as they are diagnosed with a disease and offered a treatment plan. And then to come back into the company, having had that you know, exhausting yet exhilarating switch um, is, is like coming back to, you know, to the US, my home country, from visiting another country that where you speak the language, you have a fresh view and a fresh look um, on everything around you. Um, and so for me, it, it, it might sound strange that that clinical service, which is rigorous, um, is a break. But from that mental standpoint, from that perspective, it, it really is that chance to recognize what we do and why we do it. I, th I think in biotech, um, you know, particularly for those who, who um, spend their time with their, with their head in cap tables and PLs and, and pitching, which is the day job. Um, it can sometimes be abstract to think about the patients we serve. Um, but I really do encourage all entrepreneurs um, and executives 
to not just spend time with physicians as KOLs, but with physicians to understand why they do what they do, the integrity and passion they bring to their job. And frankly, I think as biotech executives, we should be echoing the integrity and the passion of physicians in what we do every day. So let's say I put you into a time machine right now, Rahul, and I bring you back in time. You know, it could be back in time to that moment where you were thinking about switching from research to business, or maybe, you know, even a tiny bit later where you were thinking about starting your own company after, you know, giving your notice perhaps at AstraZeneca. So let's say you are able to have a sit down with that younger Rahul, and you're able to give that younger Rahul one piece of advice before launching a company. What would that be and why, given what you know now? You know, I, I think when we talk about the risk of starting a company, I never saw, you know, despite the fact I had, you know, two young daughters at the time, um, I never saw starting a company as a real risk because I had true confidence in the science and the unmet need. Um, but perhaps um, I could have been a bit cooler under fire. Um, and I think, you know, over time, this is what we learned. We talked about it, raising teenagers or, or managing teams. You learn that the, the emotional acuity in the, you know, in the moment um, doesn't always mean you have to become activated. Um, and so I think, you know, I was, I was sometimes a, a bit of a bull in a china shop as a younger, younger man, um, very ambitious, very hungry, um, and very passionate. Um, and I think I probably would have told him to, to take a breath every once in a while unplug for a, for a bit. Um, uh, good things will come. Um, and they're more likely to come with less gray hair. Um, if you, if you see the forest for the trees. I love it. So, uh, Rahul, for the people that are listening, that would love to reach out and say, hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Uh, I, I'm, I'm actually very, very, uh, accessible, um, both through Polaris or through Tome. Uh, and I'm always happy to, to speak to, to those who have interest. Amazing. Well, hey, Raul, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. The pleasure has been mine. A humble thanks, Alejandro. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.